There's a well-known saying in the true crime world, never marry a Peterson. This case is one of the three that made us fear this family name. Did Scott Peterson kill his wife Lacey, or is he the unluckiest man on earth serving a life sentence for the crime he didn't commit? Gotta love, you gotta love how I'm clearly not in a soundproof studio. Hi friends! Maya is the name. By all means necessary is the game. Do you ever stay awake up until 1.30 in the morning sobbing yourself to sleep because of a true crime case that you have just researched, no? Okay, so just brace yourselves because this one, in that case, is gonna hit you hard. Like a motherfucker. I forgot how brutal this case is. This one might definitely call for like a time step at some point during the video if you don't want to listen to the most graphic parts of it, but trigger warning if you're not familiar with Scott Peterson's case and the death of Lacey Peterson, it treats a murder of a pregnant woman and her unborn child, so... That already tells you a lot, but basically, once I thought I had a script written for this one, I went on YouTube and went to listen to Stephanie Harlow cover this case in three parts, almost like four hours or so. And then I realized I only had about like 60% of the script, so I was like noting down, it's like, God bless Stephanie Harlow, where does she even find this information? Probably in the books which I didn't read for this case. That's why Stephanie Harlow is the freaking queen. If you don't listen to her, get on it. Now, if you have listened to Stephanie Harlow cover this case, or just a hundred other people that have done so, and you're wondering, mm, what's your take, Maya? What kind of insight can you bring to the table? I have listened to like thousand people talk about Scott Peterson. Well, this is where we are going into the Scorpio territory, all right? And stop, stop exiting this podcast right now. I'm not a freaking nut job when it comes to zodiac signs. Also, Scott Peterson technically, I think, was in between whatever sign comes before Scorpio and Scorpio. I think that's called on the cusp, Maya. And also, the whatever sign is before and after me also sounds like the most Scorpio thing out there that you have said. So it's only I exist. It's like only Scorpios exist out there and the rest of the zodiac chart doesn't matter. You see, I don't even know the terms. The only thing that would offer somebody like you in terms of insight this week and especially next week is that I can kind of get into the heads of these people. I don't know if you have listened to the coverage on Leonard Lake and Charles Ing that I have done. That part was a bit too scary, even for me. Like, the way that I could sometimes get into the head of Leonard Lake was next level. That, that was because we shared a birth date. Here, especially this week, not so much. But in terms of the new insight that I can offer with this case, well, I believe there are certain points where I think Scott is doing certain things for a definite reason and can offer insight into maybe his psyche, maybe 
again, Kant didn't speak to the guy to know that this is how he was thinking. But secondly, what I'm going to try to pinpoint for you are the ways in which the police didn't follow through in the ways I wanted to see it. And then obviously that reflected on how the trial went and everything else. Because I truly believe that there are so many points that they could have followed through, that A, could have worked in Scott's favor, but B, could have consolidated for so many people whether or not he was guilty. So, without further prolonging that, let us dive into the case of the murder of Lacey Peterson. Lacey and her husband Scott were supposed to be having dinner with Lacey's family in Modesto, California, but instead Lacey's stepdad would be making this 911 call to the police. Lacey's stepdad, Ron, would tell the dispatcher that Lacey went for a walk with a dog, that she's eight months pregnant, and that her husband, Scott, came back home to find that his wife was missing, so now he's headed to the park to look for her. Had Lacey given birth, baby Connor would have been 18 today. But Lacey will never end up giving the birth to her baby. Before going into the aftermath of that call, let us go into the background on both Lacey and Scott. Lacey Denise Rocha was born on May the 4th, 1975, to Sharon and Dennis. She had an older brother, and from an early age, the family worked on the farm. Lacey also enjoyed gardening with her mom, and the work on the farm combined with gardening would really influence her for her later life. What strikes me in particular during this part of the research was how Sharon described Lacey. She said that she loved to nurture things and get them to live. And it's such a unique way to describe somebody, you know, compared to like, she lit up a room, which in Lacey's case is more than true. Like her smile, just like, her whole self was just so gorgeous, vibrant, just full of energy. But something that resonated with me the most was how everybody described Lacey living through life, how she would fully commit to things. Like her mom would say that she would watch movies and she would just live through all of the emotions. She was such a movie buff and with every movie, she would be going through the emotions of the characters. Like, if they were to die, she'd just cry and, like, mourn the whole character. If they were happy, she was happy for them. And she'd constantly be re-watching these movies and reliving these emotions. And that is me with every single freaking series. The amount of times I have cried for a character in a series versus a character in real life it's actually making me question my emotional stability. But Lacey was stable. She was just headstrong, just living through everything in life, which is how you should be doing it. Okay, cool. Her parents, Sharon and Dennis, divorced when Lacey and her older brother were young. And just like 
in a ton of divorces, my own parents included as well, it drew the siblings closer to one another. Cheryl would move to Modesto with the kids and would eventually end up marrying this guy named Ron Gronsky. Lacey had a pretty normal upbringing. She was a cheerleader in high school. After graduation, she went to California Polytechnic State Uni, and here she majored in ornamental horticulture, which technically just meant making things look nice. That was dumbing it down to the next level. But it meant majoring in decorating homes, gardens, her mom described her as a natural-born housewife, somebody who just wanted to take care of her home and of others, and also somebody who just from the get-go really knew what she wanted from life. So while Lacey was still at uni, she would sometimes visit this friend who worked at a restaurant in Morro Bay called the Pacific Cafe, and there she will meet the friend's co-worker named Scott Peterson in 1994. So let's talk about Scott. For this part, I mean, for every single part in this story, but thank fuck for Stephanie Harlow for this particular part, because it gives the background of Scott Peterson so much more context. So to understand Scott Peterson and who he was, we kind of need to go in the background of his family as well. Scott's grandfather, his mom's dad, would end up being murdered by an ex-employee of his. And he was a father of four, which meant that his mom, Scott's mom, Jackie, and other three kids would be put into an orphanage. Scott's mom, Jackie, would then go back eventually to live with her mom during her teenage years, but Jackie's mom would die as well. And from that point on, Jackie kind of went on without any direction in her life and started just dating douchebags. With one of these men, she would have her first son, Don. Then she started dating another guy, and here she would have a daughter named Anne. And she ended up giving both of these kids up for adoption because their dads just didn't want anything to do with the kids. Then she ends up meeting another man, and with this man she had a third son whose name was John. Here is when she will meet Scott's dad, whose name was Lee. And this guy wasn't really much of a dominant, prevalent figure. He was more of a private, introverted person. But something that struck me weirdly and will become kind of prevalent in this story is that he was like a typical dad who would live his life through somebody else. It just seemed as if he had some, like, unaccomplished dreams and hopes for him, and then he imposed them onto his son, which would end up being Scott. And this is the environment in which Scott Lee Peterson would end up being born on October the 24th, 1972, in San Diego, California. At the time, Jackie owned this fashion store, and Lee was a businessman in this crate packaging company. Now, if you have been following, you would have realized that Scott was the only biological child that Lee and Jackie had together. So, Anne and the other kids eventually came to live with the family, now that they were doing better, I guess. But Scott would always have a preferential treatment. 
While Scott was being put up on a pedestal, couldn't do anything wrong by Jackie's or Lee's standards, the same treatment wasn't really applied for half-brothers and sisters. From the very early age, Lee would take Scott out. They would go fishing, they would go hunting, he would take him out on the golf course, they would start practicing since Scott was of a very early age. He seemed to be really living for this child and investing into him, but he never did any of that with the rest of the kids. And during this time, Scott would be sharing a bedroom with his half-brother John. That was until John, who was older than Scott, when he was in his teenage years, he did something bad. We don't know what, but his family disowned him. And I have a feeling it has to do with him not being Lee's biological kid, all of the treatment that Scott was getting and how they just decide when and when not to like neglect the rest of the family. Kind of have a feeling it has to do with that. By the end of his high school, Scott was one of the top junior golfers in San Diego. So his dad, to motivate him further to pursue this career, offered to buy him a car if he perfects this move in golf by the age of 16. So, of course, this motivation works, and Scott gets this car at this age. The way that everybody describes Scott throughout his life, throughout his childhood, is that he was always this cool, calm, collected guy. And that struck me as something to look a bit deeper into, in connection to golf in particular, because I realized I don't really know much about golf to begin with. So, these are some traits that professional golfers are famous for. Practice, patience, confidence, control of emotions, playing smarter, not harder, concentration. Now, if you translate that to who Scott Peterson was, one prevalent thing that you will find as a commonality is that Scott was always in control of his emotions, even at a professional level. Like, he'd be at a game during school years, and, like, if his team was to lose, you know, somebody would, like, slam the golf bat, rod, whatever the hell it's called, onto the ground, would lose their mind, like, would be really angry. And Scott would just be like, okay, we lost. They might win the next day. He was just constantly calm and in control. In 1990, Scott would be enrolled at Arizona State University through this partial scholarship that he got through golf. And this is when his parents truly start making excuses for him. At this stage, it's mostly Lee, because he is mostly involved in the sports part of who Scott Peterson was. The first excuse was apparently a professional golfer that Scott Peterson really looked up to. This guy, Mickelson, could not care less, was at the same university. And obviously, this guy was a better player than Scott. So, his dad would say that actually, this competition kind of demotivated his son and discourage him from further pursuing golf, which is such bullshit. Like, wouldn't it motivate you more to beat somebody who is, like, at a higher rank, to strive to become better at what you're already good at? 
So that's one bullshit over. But then apparently Scott got into some beef with another professional golfer who was attending the same uni. Apparently they went out drinking and either Scott snitched like to the uni and to the coach that, you know, this other guy was like super drunk or it was the guy's dad, there are different versions of this story, or it was the guy's dad that actually said, like, Scott is such a bad influence, like, the guy couldn't wake up in time to play golf the next morning. So the dad actually spoke to the coach, and the coach just kicked Scott off the team. But in short, that is where Scott's golf career on a professional level kind of ends. He would eventually transfer to a different college in San Luis Obispo and later would study at California Polytechnic State University. Here he was kind of indecisive as well. He started studying international business, but then switched to agricultural business. The professors at this university couldn't have praised Scott Peterson enough. One of his professors actually said, I wouldn't mind having a class full of Scott Petersons, which in hindsight is the eeriest thing you can freaking say. Just wait until the end of this story. But while he was studying, he also worked at a restaurant in Morro Bay that was called the Pacific Cafe. So we come to that fateful day in 1994 when Lacey and Scott meet up. So, Lacey's just there, visiting a friend, she spots this hot-looking guy that works with her, and she takes, like, a napkin and just puts her phone number down and gives to the friend to give to Scott. And Scott just kind of, like, takes this piece of paper later and just kind of, like, throws it into the garbage. He said... He did that because he just couldn't have believed that somebody, like, as beautiful as Lacey would have ever wanted anything to do with him. To me, this part of the story is one of the eeriest, but I'd be, I'd be pissed. I'd be <laughs> so pissed if I knew that somebody spotted me, knew that that was me, I went ahead, which I would do because I'm a fucking predator, give somebody my phone number and for them to be like, no, actually, like, I, this is why I threw it away. I'm like, mm, suspicious as fuck. But Lacey knew what she wanted. So she returned to the cafe the other day and she was like, why did you never call me? And he was like, oh, you, like, seriously want to go out on a date with me? She was like, yeah. So they went out on the first date. And Lacey was so determined, she knew that this will be the man that she will want to marry, that even before their first date, she told her mom that. She told her mom she met somebody that she will eventually end up marrying. How do you think that this wannabe professional golf player, king of romance, amazing, nobody has anything wrong to say about Scott, would go about his first date. It'd be some romantic date, candlelight, dinner, flowers. No! He actually takes Lacey on a boat for, like, deep-sea fishing. Had he just had a normal conversation with Lacey, he would have realized that she's actually scared of water, but he didn't. And this is something that Stephanie Harlow actually points out, that he's probably replicating from what he knows of his dad of how Lee always kind of, like, tried to live 
through his son. And the only way that Lee saw bonding with his son was doing what he liked doing. So maybe Scott thinks the only way to get a girl to like him is to get her to like what he is doing. I mean, God, God forbid. <laughs> even though this gives me Natalie Wood vibes, even though Lacey didn't like that date and she was seasick on that freaking boat, she goes out with him again. And the weekend after their first date, actually, Sharon, Lacey's mom, would meet Scott. They would come to the cafe and Scott would have set up the set of roses, the bouquet of roses, one for Lacey and one for Sharon. And he knew from the get-go how important family and family unit were to Lacey. So... From that point on, both of them are just spending all of their time together and two years later they would end up getting married. Because the two of them met while they were still in college, they graduate and they ended up opening this bar together that they worked in because Scott was kind of more into sales, more business oriented and then Lacey was making sure that this bar is presentable, that it's well decorated. But eventually, they sold the bar and bought a house on Covina Avenue in Modesto, and they moved there. And the plan was to move into Modesto because Lacey wanted to get pregnant soon. She wanted to start up a family, and most of her family was in Modesto. So she wanted to have all of the holidays, all of the celebrations together with her family. Before Lacey got pregnant in 2002, she would be working as a part-time substitute teacher and Scott was working at this job basically selling fertilizers, but he had a substantial salary. He had a salary of about $5,000 a month before taxes and they lived well. But this company that he worked for, Trade Corp, had different bases and different conferences that Scott would have to attend to, so he would have to travel for work. For the next six years, Lacey's family would embrace Scott. They would say that he made Lacey happy, that both of them worked enthusiastically, that they really loved their jobs, that Lacey enjoyed being a housewife, cooking, entertaining, maintaining that house, just perfectly clean and decorated. And then, in 2012, how thrilled Lacey was that she ended up being pregnant. Lacey's due date was supposed to be February the 10th, 2003, and both of them already had a name set out for their unborn son, which would be Connor. Something that Lacey's mom, Sharon, would later say was that Scott never seemed too thrilled. Like, he went along with things just because Lacey wanted it. Kind of like, move to Modesto, getting married so soon, meeting her family so soon. There were times in the past where it just seemed like, you know, Scott went along with things, and pregnancy was one of them. But something that really sticks in my mind is that Sharon recalls this time, and this would be the last time that she would see her daughter in person, that, you know, her mom kind of, like, placed her hand on her bump, just sort of, like, trying to feel for the pulse, feeling for the little corner moving inside. 
And at least he said, Mom, Scott never does this. He never wants to feel the bump, to feel for the pulse, to just feel the child moving. So that would be the last time that Sharon would see Lacey alive. And now we move to the day before, so the 23rd of December. When we are referring to December the 23rd, it helps explain a lot of things, but I actually think a lot more importance should have been given to what Scott and Lacey did on that day. Because, according to all of the sources, Scott would have a haircut with Lacey's half-sister. So, remember how Lacey's parents divorced and then the mom got remarried? So, she had another half-sister called Amy. And, according to all sources, Lacey would bring Scott to this salon, you know, where she would chat with her half-sister and she would do Scott's hair. And that happened every month. And something I couldn't find, and if Stephanie Harlow couldn't find it, I just don't believe it's out there on the internet, that is whether it happened on the 23rd of each month, whether Scott knew exactly when something like this would happen. Because in my theory of this whole story, Scott kind of premeditated this, thought about every single thing as we are gonna dive into, and I just doubt that he let anything slip up. I think he knew exactly that this was going to happen. And as Amy was cutting his hair, they also spoke about the next day's dinner, so the Christmas Eve dinner. And, you know, Amy was just saying how there was some basket, like some present that they wanted to bring to the table, to like the stepdad and everything. And Scott interjects and offers to pick up this fruit basket from that place that was arranging it, and that he is going to, you know, pick it up and bring it to that dinner later that night. Just from Scott's whole life, just from how this story continues, I think here he saw an opportunity. During this time in the salon, Scott also mentioned how the next morning he will go to play golf. Important thing. So, he will go play golf, then from there he can pick up that fruit basket, you know, go pick up Lacey, just shower, change clothes, and then meet for the Christmas Eve dinner. And during this time at the salon, Lacey would also ask her half-sister Amy how to curl her hair in a certain way for tomorrow. So, like, to show her sort of how to style it. And Amy did so. The two of them leave the salon. They go order pizza, eat some of that pizza at home, and go to sleep. December the 24th comes around, and Scott and Lacey woke up together at their home in Modesto. They ate breakfast, and Scott remembers that Martha Stewart was sort of playing in the background. She was making this meringue. He wasn't paying much attention to it, because Lacey was preoccupied. She had a lot of things to do, and Scott was just planning to go out golf, you know, pick up that food basket, and then come home. But, you know, Lacey was kind of, like, curling her hair. There was also a recipe for this cake that she was baking for that evening. And this cake would take about nine-plus hours to make. So, you know, she had to be on time with that. She was watching TV. And also, Scott remembers filling up 
the bucket of water for her to mop the floor. Because I told you she kept the house immaculate. Like, she kept it clean. She really took care of the interior and made sure that it was always spot on. This part triggers me more than a lot of the parts in this story. Like, I feel like everybody in Scott Peterson's case has that one part that just makes them want to, like, lose their freaking mind. And for a lot of people, it is that Lacey was curling her hair. Because while Scott was to go golfing, Lacey would go out for a walk with their dog Mackenzie. So this is how she would stay fit during her pregnancy. So they'd be asking, like, it's December, right? It's cold, humid outside. Why would you curl your hair and then go out to walk your dog while, I don't know, the dough rises on your cake. And I get that to a certain degree. Maybe she just wanted it to that style. We don't know what she spoke about with her half-sister. Like, maybe she wanted to curl it and then to leave it, like, sort of be like those loose little curls. We don't know. For me, the part that sticks out in this story, why don't you mop the freaking floor? Scott, your wife is eight months pregnant. You're just like, no, 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 honey, I'll fill up your thing, and then you clean. You clean once I leave to, like, have fun and play golf. And another hill that I am not, like, insanely going to die on is the fact that he went, supposedly golfing at first, on the Christmas Eve day. That, again, is because I'm not super religious, not super family-oriented, like... I like to structure my days and do something else on certain holidays as well, so that it's not, like, a whole day about Christmas. But you might be of a different opinion. Like, why isn't he with his wife at home the whole day? Scott would leave the house between 9.30 a.m. and 10. And according to what he would tell the police later, he loaded some umbrellas to sort of transport them to this storage room that he had at the secondary location. But later, these umbrellas would be found in their garage, in their home. So, people started speculating, was he actually loading umbrellas or was that just an excuse because he was actually loading his wife's dead body onto that truck? What we sort of know in this case is that Scott never really intended to go golfing. And that is because of his GPS. He immediately started heading towards his storage room, which is where he kept his boat. And he would later say that he has just, like, changed his mind because it was cold outside. Like, he realized it's too cold to golf, but you know where it's colder? In the open water? No, he's rather going to go to the open water instead and take his boat out there. So he heads to that storage room and, like, his GPS records, all of the details later will confirm that, you know, he wasn't, like, making pit stops. Like, it took him the amount of time that it should have taken him to that storage room, which was about, like, hour and a half. There, he would load the boat with, like, one of those pulley doors. So, like, he would kind of load the boat onto his truck. And here, he received this work email. So, there is a record of him logging onto the laptop, just, like, responding to a work email. I'm mentioning loading the boat onto the truck because you physically had to open the door, 
and then well loading the whole ass boat into like the back of your truck would kind of make a sound make some noise it would be in broad daylight something that we don't have here are were there any cameras actually facing what was going on here because we don't have that kind of footage so maybe his storage room just wasn't facing cameras to begin with around this time Lacey has gone out to take her walk and according to this neighbor of hers she just saw their dog Mackenzie on a leash just sort of like walking aimlessly down the street and she thought nothing of it she thought Lacey was just like inside and the dog kind of like jumped over the fence or whatnot and was wandering the streets so she puts the dog behind the fence in their yard and just closes the fence behind her no alarms were raised at this time Scott's now picked up his boat and he is in the marina. And this is where we have what I like to call an array of red flags. There are tickets that Scott was in this marina. There are timestamps of when he would have parked there. There are timestamps of when he would have gotten sort of the license to even get the boat into the water. So there's like two different tickets that confirm that Scott was definitely there. That is not the part that is debatable. The red flags that I would like to mention here, first thing is the whole fishing and him having the boat out there and him actually doing that as a leisure. So I told you again and again, about his golfing experience, about his past, about how he played before professionally, how he quit it, about all of the personal characteristics of a golfer. So that was his passion. We know that for sure. Fishing was more of his dad's, Lee's passion that he kind of imposed on his son when he was younger. But Scott wasn't an avid fisherman, ever really. In fact, Scott bought this boat on the 9th of December. The fishing pole, like the rod that you would use to, you know, throw the hook with a bait on it into the water to actually get some fish on it, was bought four days ago, on the 20th of December, and people knew that because the price tag was still attached to it. I mean, unless you plan to return it, why is the price tag still attached to it? But the most incriminating thing here is that for some reason that are all the good reasons truly in this story, he actually had to have a fishing license to use this marina, to go into the open water at all. And you know how when you get this type of license, you are usually offered to get it like for an annual price, which would result a lot cheaper, or for a couple of days. And Scott, earlier in December, chose to get that fishing license in particular for those two days, 24th and 25th of December. Not so much the spur of the moment change between golf and fishing any longer. And also some would argue just shows the lack of creative thinking as an alibi, like, why don't you cash out? I think the annual license was like 30-something pounds. Why not cash out in order to look less suspicious? If you plan to use your newly bought boat, 
surely you plan to use it for more than, what, two days in a row. Otherwise, why the fuck buy it? Why buy the rod? These kind of things aren't cheap. He spent exactly 78 minutes on that marina, from the moment that he parked to the moment that he left that parking spot. At 2.30, just as he finished up, he is driving back home, and as we know, he has about, like, hour and a half to drive all the way to Lacey, well, he rings her, and he actually says, like, he won't be able to make it to pick up that fruit basket, and if she could head out there to pick it up. Now, this wasn't a call between the two of them. He would make multiple calls to Lacey and would leave multiple voicemails. Scott finished fishing that day at some point in the afternoon, and made a phone call to Lacey. Can you be at a full set? We'll be able to get to Villa Farms to get that basket for Papa. I hope you would get this message and uh, go on out there. I'll see you in a bit, sweetie. Love you. Bye. Scott makes it home at around 4.30 p.m., and he doesn't see Lacey, he sees her car parked up in the yard, and he sees Mackenzie inside of the fence, so he thinks everything is okay. He thinks that Lacey already went to the home, you know, that she has baked a cake, and that she has went home, and he is going to meet her there. So he doesn't panic, he goes inside, he goes straight to the washing machine and just, like, sort of takes the clothes that he was wearing that day and puts that load into the washing machine, washes, like, some other clothes that were there on the side. In my mind, I was like, oh, so he can't mop the freaking floor, but he can wash clothes, bitch, please. But he would, apparently, because Lacey was pregnant and so far ahead pregnant, like, she would get sick nauseous when she would smell certain chemicals. So this wasn't out of the ordinary for Scott. So he puts that load into the washing machine, goes to the kitchen, eats like a slice of that pizza that was left over from last night, takes out some pizza, takes out some milk, and because he's in a rush, he's sort of like eating that pizza and bringing some milk into the shower as he's, you know, prepping to just shower quickly and then head to meet Lacey. The pizza and milk thing, I do have a problem with that. Don't you think that I'm just going to, like, miss making a comment on that? Because... That, if anything, in this story, I mean, the behavior where he can't get angry, that, for me, also just speaks for itself. But this is some psychopathic shit. Who the fuck taught this guy to eat pizza with milk? Just imagining how those two flavors would combine makes my stomach turn. So let's move on from that. So he has that shower, and now he's bringing, you know, that plate and the glass that he used to pour the milk into the kitchen. And in the kitchen, they have the landline, and it's showing, like, that it has voice messages. And it shows the voice messages from Scott and also from Lacey's stepdad. And this is when the panic sets in, because... If Lacey's stepdad is leaving the messages, that means Lacey isn't there. So, Scott picks up the phone and calls the family, and he's like, is Lacey with you? And they say no, so Scott immediately resorts to saying that she is missing in that case, because she isn't here, she isn't there, she must be missing. And her family immediately picked up on that language, but they were like, he's panicked, let's just not 
immediately raise all of the red flags. So they tell Scott they're going to ring all of the friends, like all of the other family members, and after doing that, they will meet him at the park. So can he take Mackenzie, and can he go to this park nearby where Lacey would have walked? So Scott does that. And eventually, of course, none of the friends in the family would be able to confirm that Lacey was with them, because she wasn't. So they would meet Scott in this park. And just another heartbreaking thing, like her mom would say they would be opening garbage bins, just hoping that, you know, they don't find their child inside of a garbage bin. Which just strikes me visually so hard, because you're just like, your heart stops in your chest, you open up a garbage bin, you're like, okay, there's nobody in there, and then you kind of move on to the next one. It's just gut-wrenching. While he's there, allegedly knowing what has happened to Lacey that morning. While they were either on the way to the park or like on their way back, they would have met that neighbor that put Mackenzie behind the fence and she would tell them exactly at what time they found Mackenzie, so around 10.30. So this just confirms for the family something definitely has happened. And this is when the call from the beginning of the video is made to 911 from her stepdad saying that she is indeed missing. And because Lacey was a pregnant woman, eight months pregnant, the police takes this seriously from the get-go. The searchers are dispatched, people volunteering, they're printing out all of the posters, everything is put into motion immediately. And now the police, for the first time, goes to speak to Scott. At the house, they immediately realize there is just no evidence of struggle, no foreign fingerprints, nothing indicating that, I don't know, the blood was spilled and then cleaned. Nothing of that sort. The only abnormality, you could say, because this was Lacey Peterson's house, was that the bed was made, but then it kind of looked creased on one end, as if, like, somebody kind of sat there for a while, which isn't alarming in itself. So they speak to Scott, and then they follow him to a storage place to confirm his alibi, you know, to see if there are any tickets, like, did he actually go to the storage place, why did he change plans, all of that. Now, when they're at the storage place, the police, of course, wants to take pictures of it. But Scott says he can't switch the light on because the power is out. So the police officer parks up his car really close to it, and then blasts the headlights, and then takes the pictures that way. But later, they would call, like, the power company in the area, and they would say there was never a power cut, so he was lying to you. While they are there, so they're not even at the police station yet. The police is kind of gauging, like, okay, is this guy doing this regularly, right? Because, yeah, there are people to confirm he was at the marina, like, there are tickets, there are timestamps, Nothing wrong with that. As I said, like, he apparently has an alibi. That's not the problem. The problem is that Scott just seems to be acting really off. So this guy strikes up a conversation with him, like, you know, well, you are an avid fisherman, like, what kind of bait did you use today? You know, it's December, did you get any fish? Like, is there anything that you can show us, basically, like, to confirm that you're actually in the waters? So Scott couldn't remember what bait he used that morning, 
In fact, Scott just didn't look preoccupied, didn't look worried at all. He was helping the police, he was willing to do anything that they asked, but he just wasn't proactive about any of it. There was just no worry to it. In fact, his concerns, more than Lacey and her well-being, seem to have been like that his car door hit like Lacey's that day and you know how much that damage repair would cost. Or like, yeah, you can use Lacey's items, as in to give the sniffer dogs so that they can take off the scent and then search for her in the surrounding park areas. But just make sure that if anything is new, you know, that we keep the receipts, that we keep the labels, just in case we need to return them. They're like, where is your head, sir? Like, <laughs> this is fucking concerning behavior in itself. Why do you care about how much things cost? when this shouldn't be your priority number one right now, right here. The police would bring him in that same night and they would end up questioning him for seven hours and they would offer for Scott to do polygraph and again, he cooperated. He said, no issue, but I'm really tired, you know, after seven hours interrogation, after everything that happened today, can I go home, sleep it off, and then meet you here tomorrow for a polygraph test? So the police officers say, yeah, no issue, because he was cooperating with them. But the next day, Scott changed his mind, and he would soon end up lawyering up. In the next few days, which means on Christmas Day, Boxing Day, and the 27th of December, when the family should be around the table celebrating with their loved ones, including Lacey, including the child that technically was viable, could have already been born. They are organizing press conferences and they're setting up rewards for Lacey. 900 people during those first couple of days have helped search the area. And Scott is always there. And I don't necessarily agree with the saying too many cooks, like too many cooks spoiling the broth, which, by the way, dates from like 15,000s, and they considered it a proverb even then. The origin of the expression is basically what it is, the belief that too many cooks are actually going to do a worse off job making one simple soup. And usually I'm like, well, yeah, if the cooks are like really just bad and don't know how to do their job, otherwise that soup should be served at Michelin star restaurants. In this case, what I mean by that is that Scott was showing his face. He was there, he was present. He was getting the calls from the tip line. But he was just kind of showing face. He was just appearing. In fact, what people have said is that Scott wasn't even helping. He would be at a police station where people every day would place Lacey's pictures all around the walls of this police station, of the office where they have set up the tip line, where people were helping out. And every day Scott seems to have been taking some pictures off. And most of those pictures that he was taking off the walls had his face in them. On December 26th, the police officers knock on his door and they serve Scott a search warrant. And they're just like, yeah, can you just sign it? And he says, oh, you didn't think I was going to sign this without the presence of my lawyer? And they're kind of like, well, 
we have a search warrant issued, so you just, you know, eventually need to sign it. So we are just kind of giving it to you, so you do whatever the fuck you want, lawyer up if you need to, apparently, two days after your wife's disappearance. To which Scott just looks at them and says, where's the trust? I find it interesting that Scott is the guy that would, like, watch a movie and while Lacey would live through the emotions of the characters, would give so much love to all of these performances and would breathe through them, Scott would be the basic guy who would just, like, remember certain lines. This might prove useful to him if we refer to Martha Stewart and what he has watched on the day. But as the search continues and Lacey and the unborn baby Connor were nowhere to be found, well, certain theories start popping up in people's heads. Scott was always seen as a primary person of interest, possible suspect. They didn't name him that yet, but they were looking into him. And here you could really say that the police did have some tunnel vision. But there will also be a burglary that has happened on the same street, kind of like the house across where Lacey and Scott lived. And the dates of this burglary will be heavily debated, because the only logical sense would be that it had happened on the 24th, when Scott was out and Lacey would be there. As in, the only logical sense in the story to support that maybe somebody else harmed Lacey, except from Scott. But then the police would say that, no, this burglary actually happened on the 26th, because they would eventually end up catching these two burglars. And they would question them, and immediately during the interrogation, these two burglars said, we have nothing to do with the disappearance of the pregnant lady. Which in itself sounds suspicious, but then they couldn't connect the two. Why it couldn't have happened on the 26th would be because the media was already there. As soon as Lacey disappeared and the media picked up the story, they were camping out in front of Scott's house to see his face, to question him, to see if there's any movement on the story. So they would have definitely witnessed a burglary happening just next door. This was important because this burglary happened after 10.30 in the morning, which is after Mackenzie was found and also after Scott had left the house, which means that Lacey couldn't have been dead in the back of Scott's truck because she was still alive, preventing a burglary. This was quickly discarded. Then there were other theories in a way of Lacey was still alive after he left the house because multiple people, like dozens of people, have reported seeing her. And they will be determined that that was Lacey who they have seen. There's like a whole map, like a whole mapped out situation of exactly the spots where people have claimed to have seen Lacey. And the police immediately discarded this. So they haven't even interviewed like 99% of these people, which could have worked in Scott's favor, yes, but also they quickly discarded it because they were certain that this was another pregnant lady. According to Stephanie's channel, this couldn't have been another pregnant lady because this woman had already given birth. So there is still some validity to people never actually questioning these eyewitnesses. 
Because if you think about it, they could have pointed the police towards the pathway that Lacey was taking. Maybe they could figure out which way she was walking. Was she walking towards her usual walking spot into the park? Like, exactly what happened based on where they have seen her. But of course, if you don't take these eyewitness statements in the first couple of days, later... What's the point later? Their memory is going to be overlapped by so many other things. So nothing really developed out of this. Now take this as your test for me to witness have you been paying attention since the beginning. What was Scott's profession? What was he doing for a living? Fertilizer salesman, right? So what did it require him to do to travel for work? This isn't your first true crime case that you have ever listened to. You know that travel for work usually means, or eventually leads in these cases, to having an affair. I'm not saying if your spouse does it, they're having an affair. I'm just saying usually if they are a topic of conversation within a true crime case, they've been sinning, okay? So on December the 30th, that same year, so just six days after Lacey would disappear, there was an interesting call coming through that tip line that they have set up. Now, this tip line was monitored by the police officers. So, when a woman called Amber Fry called them that day, and this person was sort of like typing up, you know, what they're saying on the phone, usually the calls they would get would be about a sighting, about like similar information every day. And as she is typing, the police officer is kind of like over her shoulder looking at the notes, being like, wait, this is the person you have on the phone. Pass me on that phone immediately. What Amber Fry is going to tell to this police officer is that Scott and her have been dating since November the 20th. So for over a month that she had no idea that he was married because, in fact, what he had told her was that this is going to be his first holiday without his wife. Amber Fry was 27, she had a young daughter and she was a massage therapist, she was raising her daughter alone, and she was introduced to Scott by her friend in November of 2002, so that same year, and the two of them would quickly start this relationship. So many plot lines in this story made me squirm, and this is definitely one of them. Scott was actually on a work trip, and he was at this bar in this hotel where he was staying, and he actually first started hitting on Amber's friend. And then she was kind of like, eh, no, don't really like you, you weirdo. But then she said like, oh, maybe you would like to meet up my friend Amber. And then they did, and they immediately felt passionate for each other. And Amber was a single mom. Scott knew exactly what to say in order to sweep her off her feet in the limited time that he would have on his work trips. So during the first date, he picked her up from the house and then he stopped at the hotel. He just says, you know, can I go up to my room just to like freshen up, change out of these clothes, and then, you know, we can go out for a date. Of course, as soon as Amber goes up to the room for Scott to shower, she's welcomed with, like, all of these roses, flowers, like, romantic setup, romantic dinner. 
So the two of them started dating that night. I put in the script, roses are this man's MO and no one speaks about it. Yeah, if this man was a serial killer, he'd have a thing for the fucking roses. Without a doubt, one of the less important things in this case that we need answers to, but still, would be interesting in a way, because why roses? I doubt that he just thought of this on his own. I genuinely don't think Scott Peterson has ever had like an original thought in his mind. Not because he isn't smart, just because I feel like he was always impressionable and picked up on certain patterns of life from his parents and then like, you know, people that he surrounded himself with. So that would be one thing to pay attention to and to understand in more detail. Another thing would be that on these days, of course, he was selling Amber dreams, but he also told her, like, he's fine with her daughter, of course, but, you know, he doesn't want kids. And another thing that kind of triggers me on so many levels is the wording that he had used here. On one of the dates with Amber, he told her that he had lost his wife. And after saying that, apparently he broke down. Now, the wording of that is interesting, because he didn't say his wife died, he didn't say she was killed, murdered, how she died, he said lost. Which, technically, you can use metaphorically, like, oh, I lost her, you know, we just weren't on the same wavelength no more. You can then later say, oh, I never told you that I wasn't married any longer, just that I lost her. You know, you can use it as an excuse, which is a typical dickhead response. But Ember wanted, obviously, to answer more questions, but on that day, he broke down, and they never kind of went around that topic. She didn't want to poke it yet. I mean, if you remember, this relationship was pretty fresh. But what Ember couldn't have known is that on the day that he had a conversation about having lost his wife, well, that day would be 9th of December, the same date that Scott ended up buying that boat. Between then and December the 24th, what the police is just about to find out after speaking with Ember is that actually... Amber's friend that was at that bar, remember the friend that Scott first started hitting on? Well, that friend called Scott, and she has somehow connected the dots and realized that Scott was actually married. So, she just told him, fess up to Amber, be a man, confess to my friend, otherwise, if you don't, I'm going to tell her. As we know, Scott doesn't confess to Amber, he just continues this charade as he will, even after Lacey disappears. And you know how you have the office Christmas party? The work Christmas parties that are usually well ahead of Christmas, before you sort of go onto that holiday? Well, Scott did have one of his, and it was also in one of the other places, not in Modesto. So, he chose to bring Amber to one of his work parties. So, there is a picture of Scott and Amber at a Christmas party, and Lacey attending another Christmas party, heavily pregnant, by herself. And that picture is going to end up haunting Scotty Boy forever. But now let's talk about what happened after Lacey disappeared, because he still apparently has this affair going on. What the police would discover after having the warrant for his house and later checking all of his devices is that Scott had four different laptops 
and four different fonts. So, of course, once Lacey disappeared, they didn't have all of these records. Had they had those, they would have realized that Scott was still communicating with Amber, but now kind of less and less frequently in order to avoid the scrutiny of the police. And now it makes sense in hindsight why he would have been taking all of the pictures of him and Lacey down, why he only wanted pictures of Lacey on the missing posters. He just didn't want Amber to catch him out. Well, luckily, Amber called the tip line this night because the police would immediately ask her if she was to accept having the phone calls between her and Scott recorded. And she says yes. She felt tremendous guilt because she didn't know that Scott was married, let alone married with a woman that was pregnant, that was expecting his child. So she just offered to do anything to help. And on the 31st of December, so New Year's Eve, a public vigil for Lacey and Connor would take place. And some family members spoke up on stage. They still asked friends and the family to never stop looking. You know, sort of reminding people they're still missing, thanking everybody for helping out with the investigation. Scott wasn't one of those people. He was seen interacting with people off the stage. There are certain people that have seen him, you know, sort of smiling with, like, young cousins of his, to which he would have a response for everything. Like, oh, you know, he didn't want them to worry or whatnot. But there would be a phone call from that vigil to Amber. And during this phone call, Scott is going to tell Amber that he's actually in Paris. And it's New Year's in Paris. It's already, like, past midnight, so he just called her to wish her Happy New Year. And he's like, the crowd is huge. Yeah, we are in front of the Eiffel Tower while he's at a vigil of his late wife. I cannot go, like, my whole skin crawls up when I think about this. Like, the crowd is huge. Like, as if it's a fucking concert. As if it's a fucking celebration. So, of course, everything is on tape. There are going to be 29 tapes. Just Scott constantly lying to Amber. I love it. I love Amber. I just don't say anything against Amber in the comments. I beg of you, I'll fight you. Because Amber didn't know. She fucking didn't know. And the moment she found out, she cooperated with the police. Scott would call Amber again later that night. So, like, when it was midnight in the US. So, you know, 2002 turned into 2003. Again, to wish her Happy New Year's. Again, the recorder is just taping everything. And Amber has been acting perfectly throughout all of these calls. I just love it. She's just like, nope, this is it. This is who I am right now. I am the actress Amber Fry, and this is how I shall behave. And I love it, because he just paints a picture of where his mind was at. Seven days after his wife has disappeared on New Year's Eve. January calls for really strange behavior by Scott, or you could just say just more and more guilt showing up on the surface. Some would say the same way, like when he told Amber that he had lost his wife and that this will be the first holiday without her. You know, maybe he was just preemptively actually trying to tell her something, that he will lose his wife rather than that being in the past tense. So, on January the 5th and the 6th, Scott would make the trips to the same pier where he would go fishing on that day, 
And he will literally just like make it a 90 minute trip and then get out of the car and just like stare at the pier. Just watch the water for like five minutes and then go back into the car and drive back home for an hour and a half. And we know this because the police was tailing his ass and this was kind of again just another suspicious thing that he would do. He was aware, even though the police was using unmarked cars, but he would later say he thought it was always the media following him. So, on all of these occasions, Scott would be driving like a freaking maniac, and he would say that he was just trying to lose the media, and just trying to clear his head, and that's why he would be making those trips to that same area. And... On one of those occasions, as he's driving and trying to lose all of these cars following him, he would end up calling Amber and confessing to her that he is actually still married. But he would say on this call that Lacey knew about the affair and that she just didn't mind. And also Lacey's missing now. You probably heard her name on the news. And on that call, Amber just immediately had a light bulb moment and she just pushed him further. She asked him, well, why did you then tell me that this is going to be the first holiday without her? You apparently don't know where she is yet. She's missing, right? They haven't found her, Scott, so why would you say something like this? And he just keeps telling her that he can't tell her the answers to that yet because he's protecting all of them. And I listen to all of these calls. I don't think I will play plenty of them just because of the really bad quality, especially on Scott's side. It's as if he is like purposely trying to muffle the sound, which again wouldn't surprise me. But on all of these calls with Amber, he just sounds so done. He just sounds so over it. He's just waiting for her to have, like, the straw that broke the camel's back moment and to just break up with him. Because, well, if he does, then he's gonna look suspicious. And it just every single one of those calls just gives me some level of joy, to be honest, which is rare in this case, because this case is morbid, because it's just, life is so hard on the cheaters, I mean, you start up a relationship, end of the month, before the month that you plan to kill your wife, like, make it make sense, my man, make it make sense, you don't want to be in one relationship, and you also don't want to be in the one that you started, like, six years after being married to your wife, just why? Why then begin it? Also, another thing, 9th of December, if you already are buying the boat, if you are already planning this murder and you are telling her that this is gonna be the first holiday without your wife, why are you also not breaking up the side relationship? Like, there's so many points in this story where I was like, why did he complicate this for himself so much? I mean, I'm glad that he did, because he's clearly a fucking dumbass. But had he not done that, had he not been just a complete dumbass who, like, got himself into this affair, he probably could have actually gotten away with this. Had it not been for Amber and all of the calls, honestly, I don't think this case would have had the same impact in the court later. At this time, he was already renting different vehicles. He said he didn't want to use Lacey's car and then he didn't want to use his because the police would know how to track it with the license plates and just like the systems within the car. So he started renting the cars 
And then again, he would just go to the marina, just there. And on January 9th, he actually checked into this hotel for a night. And what I put in the script here, because I find it intriguing, like, of course, they had evidence from the day of the 24th that Scott was in the marina, like all of the tickets, the license that he purchased, receipts for the boat and the fishing rod, all of that. And now, well, they're tailing his ass, so they have the records of where he had been. But something that I noticed the lack of is these kind of records, but prior to the 24. So how many times did he go to his storage room? Can they not track that with the GPS? Because probably can. And that would have been useful to sort of prove premeditation, to see if he had actually had, like, I don't know, any practice runs? Did he have any other short-term fishing licenses taken out? And also, one of the more important things is that once the police would have warrants for the storage room, for his house, in that storage room, they would find receipts for concrete, large amounts of concrete. And they would be able to prove, just from what they found within the storage room, that Scott has actually used that cement to make five different anchors. So they only found one homemade anchor, and the rest of the cement was gone. So where are the other anchors? Where is the rest of the cement? What always fascinated me with cases like this is why does a mistress always talk? Why do they always hold the public press conference? Why do they always, you know, use the media to expose that side relationship? Because it really happens in almost all of the cases. And here, there was a valid reason. At this point, it was only the police that knew about Amber and Scott. Scott hadn't known, because otherwise he would have known that the police had been taping all of the conversations. But more importantly, Lacey's family didn't know until this point. So what had happened is that Amber was so into this relationship with Scott that she had, you know, pictures with him, especially from that Christmas party. And she put those pictures on Christmas cards and then for Christmas, she has sent them to friends and family. And the media, while they were digging into the story, trying to find anything on Scott, well, one of Amber's friends rang up one of the media companies and said, I have something for you. There's this card with Scott Peterson and his mistress, Amber. So, luckily, this got to the police because the media was kind of like, blackmailing them in a way, saying that they're going to publish the story. So, the police had to react and get to Lacey's family first to tell them about this affair. And up until then, Lacey's family was behind Scott. They believed that he didn't have anything to do with this. But as soon as they heard about the affair, they flipped on it. And from this point on, in my opinion, Scott's fate would be sealed, because that press conference that Amber Fry would make would be so impactful. Like, immediately, you know, you can kind of think about how the theories would start playing up in people's heads. The guy had an affair. 
The motive immediately pops up in your head, like, he told her he doesn't want kids. He told her that he had lost his wife. Like, Scott immediately becomes the suspect number one after January the 24th, when Ember goes public. Four days after that, Scott would decide to tell his side of the story and he would be the one going public. But before that, let me just dive into one particular incident of Scott's and Lacey's marriage. And this is coming from the perspective of Scott's half-sister, Anne. If you remember, you know, Jackie and that side of the family, Jackie only had the eyes for Scott, and before meeting Lee, well, she would send all of the kids up for an adoption. And then, eventually, Anne, the half-sister, and Scott would reunite. She loved the Scott that she met, she loved Scott that she met in the teenage years, and she loved Lacey. She met Lacey early in their relationship, and they would sometimes spend holidays together. So they actually went to Disneyland when Lacey was seven months pregnant. And Anne noticed how much Scott has changed. He was distant, and he also seemed to be spending a lot of time in his hotel room, instead of, like, hanging out with people. And in retrospect, you can connect the dots. This is when he met Amber and had to keep that affair up for some fucking reason and have conversations with her. If there was ever a single point in this story, in any story, really, that is a clear point of no return, it would be this one. With him in Disneyland on the phone calls to his mistress while his wife is seven months pregnant. But also, it's a clear point where he could have stopped. There have been probably so many between December the 9th and December the 24th, where he could have just stopped himself broken up an affair, asked for a divorce, anything, anything else but what he allegedly will do. And the interviews that police had with Anne, with his half-sister, also gave them the insight about how his relationship with his parents worked. I mean, they didn't really even have to interview that side of the family much, because the media had already done that, and Jackie and Lee would both give public interviews, and it was kind of clear that they didn't really like Lacey. Jackie was that typical mom who just only had the eyes for her son, and, you know, nobody was good enough for her baby Scott. Scott's parents, Jackie and Lee, would both sit down for an interview, and this would be post-Amber Fry press conference, and they would be asked, like, so, do you have any comment on, you know, your son cheating on his pregnant wife? Like, doesn't that make him look suspicious? And both, his dad and his mom would kind of give sort of almost the similar answers to, like, no, like, all men cheat. And then, when they asked them, but his wife was pregnant, both of them said, oh yeah, no, that's when most men cheat, during the pregnancy, like, <laughs> duh, what did you expect, like, for him to be faithful while she was pregnant? And I was just sitting there watching that interview, like, doesn't Jackie understand what this means? Like, I know she had tough life and all of that, but <laughs> don't you know that that means that your husband most probably cheated on you while you were pregnant with Scott? Like, <laughs> connect the dots, bitch. His family is just one of the most 
infamous examples of enablers and like the kids that they're going to have that can do no wrong by them. But what I don't understand, having the background that we have, is why enable one son and ignore the rest of the family? I get it for Lee, I don't get it, but like, it was his only biological kid with Jackie. Again, he ignored all of his other biological children. So no, I don't, I, I don't get it. And Jackie had all of the other biological children that she birthed herself. So why? Why? What was so special about this guy? What was ever so special about him? Also, after Lacey disappeared, Jackie would get Anne, the half-sister, to go to the marina with her to sort of look for people who saw Scott. So she was ensuring, instead of looking for Lacey, to make sure to consolidate her son's alibi. It would also be under Jackie's pressure that Scott will go to stay with Anne for some time to avoid the media. He was probably like calling his mommy every night, telling him how hard it is for him, for the media and the police to be tailing his ass. The priorities of this man are just next level. And while there, Anne would remember that Scott behaved so weirdly yet again. Like, she's just like, this isn't the man that I have met years ago. She would say that the room where he was staying at would also be facing, like, a different side of the marina, and that Scott would just constantly be looking at all of these divers still going into the water, trying to find Lacey, because they thought that's where she was. And Scott would just be making comments like, this is the wrong place, they're looking at the wrong place, she isn't there. And I would be really creeped out, because why would you say something like that? Anne, who at that point had a kid, also said that Scott just blatantly would switch and would start just chatting up the babysitter, as in, like, hitting on her babysitter. Luckily, this charade won't last for long, because, as I told you, Scott decided to speak his truth, to give his own public interview. Another thing that happened between these dates is that while the divers weren't going down, trying to look for Lacey's body, Scott would attend the christening, and he probably knew he was tailed at this point. He attained, like, his cousin's christening, and here he was seen crying for the first time, holding a baby. And this could have been for him to be seen by a police officer crying, or maybe he has some part of his soul that is maybe active, that... Again, he's finally being hit by the fact that he will never be holding his unborn son due to his own doing. I don't know, you make out of that what you wish. But then, right after that christening, he went home and there are records of him subscribing to different hardcore porn websites. So, you know, it's all about the balance in life and about what you choose to do. For me... I genuinely think that he is calculating certain moves and that with his actions, just like by how he's switching from one to the next, that he is trying to pull, you know, that Casey Anthony defense, where on one side, then, you know, that would distract the police from his actual actions. Like, oh, why is he purchasing this? Why is he doing these random actions? Or probably in his head he thought that by doing that, 
people are going to see it and be like, well, this couldn't be the guy who had anything to do with his wife's disappearance, because had he done so, had he been so preoccupied and so worried, well, how could he be functioning like this, you know? This is the guy who doesn't have a guilt-ridden mind, which, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> simply not how life works, Scotty boy. On January the 28th, Scott sat down for an interview with Diane Sawyer. And here he really fucked up on so many levels, so let me just highlight a couple of them. Here, Scott would reiterate that Lacey was aware of the affair with Amber and that she was okay with it. He thanked Amber for coming along and confessing to the affair, saying that that was the right thing to do. He was so grateful that she decided to do it. As if. And I watched Logan on Observe analyze the body language and everything, and he would be just squirming. Like, his whole face would start twitching, eye-blocking, different little weird winks, his lips just moving all sorts of ways. On the different points of the affair, and also how open he was about it to the police. Meaning that he said he told the police about the affair, which we know isn't fucking true, because the police would be on Amber's case straight away, not once Amber called the police on the tip line. And another point where his whole body language changed was on the point about how much Lacey knew. It just isn't plausible that Lacey would have known about Amber that far along, or just ever, and been completely fine with this affair. And then, when he really, really fucked up, was when he said Lacey was an amazing person. While every time he would refer to Amber, he would refer to her in the present tense. February the 10th comes around, and this would have been Connor's birth date. Scott still is completely oblivious to the fact that the police is just recording every single conversation he's having with Amber. He shows up at a press conference and he would call Amber on this date because it was also her birthday. He also ensured, and this is just next level, he sort of, because he couldn't see her, but he also couldn't tell her why he couldn't see her, he ensured that she gets a present, so he sort of arranged, like, a delivery to her house, so he told her, like, hey, if you just pop outside, like, there will be a present for you. And after this day, Amber just, you know, got enough on these phone calls, and she just said to the police, like, I just want to stop this, like, I don't plan to continue seeing this guy, like, I'm not insane, so I'm just going to have a phone call with him and just cut this affair short, just stop this nonsense. So she does that, she tells Scott that it would be a good idea they stop speaking, and it's... On this call, I genuinely feel like Scott felt relief. He was waiting for this moment. And he kind of, like, started doing that thing, like, oh, let's have a mutual breakup, you know? Like, it was also my idea, you know? That would be the best for both of us. Just let the woman win for once. After this, in March, the police would declare Lacey's disappearance as a homicide, even without the body. And you also gotta think now... Scott must finally believe that he has gotten away with this. There's no body, 
no crime because there's no other evidence connecting him to it. He has an alibi and he has just broken up an affair. Well, she did, but in his eyes it was mutual. He probably thinks, this is it. I have gotten away with it. Let me just move on with my life. But then, in April, on April the 13th, indeed, a couple was walking their dog in the marshes of the San Francisco Bay shore and they found what they believed was a decomposing fetus. The police, of course, brought this body to the autopsy straight away, but they didn't publish anything because they thought, okay, if one of the bodies floated up onto the surface, it's just a matter of time until the other one does too. And only one day later, Another person walking found the body of a recently pregnant woman and this woman was wearing beige pants, maternity bra and her body had washed up a mile away from where the baby's body was found. Now we come to the worst part. Okay, so let's just breathe in, breathe out. The woman that was found was found without her head. Her limbs were missing, including also one of her legs and most of the other. So it was practically almost only her torso that had been found. On April the 18th, finally, the test results would verify that these were the bodies of Lacey and her unborn son, Connor. Now let me outline the most bits of the autopsy. The one that is most confusing is why was the fetus outside of the mother and that is due to something that's called coffin death, which please rename that term for the love of God. So the autopsy technicians would be unsure whether the baby was alive or dead when the fetus left the mother, but he was in a better condition than Lacey was, meaning that her body and her womb sort of acted as a protection for the most of the time, and that probably both of them were dead, once they went into that water and the baby was dead within the mother and then it kind of just, with that coffin birth process, left the body and swam up to the shore before her. They believed that baby Connor would be dead because there was no food in the baby's stomachs which would have indicated that he was not alive at any point. And also, Lacey's torso suffered a few cracked ribs and also, it was emptied of internal organs, except for the uterus, which would have protected the fetus, which would have protected Connor. Because of the level of the decomposition, they could never determine the actual exact cause of death, which just kills me inside. It just kills me inside. And yes, if you are connecting the dots, the speculation here is that all of the limbs were missing because of all of the anchors that were attached to those limbs once the body was dropped into the water. Now, as you know, I'm quite big on like visualization, trying to fit that with the psychology. And just based on everything we know about Scott, I don't believe that this was an argument, that this was like a spur-of-the-moment thing. There are a lot of people that believe that Lacey died that morning. I believe either it was like the night before or sort of like 
Chris Watts Hirsch, you know, during the night when she was asleep or groggy. I don't believe that this was, you know, the two of them just like striking up an argument and him violently killing her. And that was because of the lack of the evidence in the house. There was no blood, nothing indicating the MO, nothing indicating how this would have been done. Which leads me to believe that it was probably something like strangulation. And that Lacey left that house that morning in the back of the truck, already dead. It's just that a lot of people speculate why would Scott Peterson be watching a cooking show in the morning if Lacey wasn't there, if she wasn't present, there was a recipe on the counter. Like, why would any of these things be happening if Lacey wasn't there? And in my opinion, it could have been that, yes, she had woken up and she was just watching TV and that he had approached her, killed her then and there, or that maybe he was just trying to disconnect, disassociate, you know, plan out everything, where he lives, what in the house, like the curler for the hair, the recipe, the mop, so that he can sell this story, and that he switched on the TV, was playing this cooking show because it would fit his alibi, if he knew that it would be Martha Stewart, which was Lacey's favorite show to watch, and if he picked up on any recipe that Martha would be making. Between the 14th and the 18th, the autopsies haven't confirmed the identities, but the media has gone public saying that a body of a recently pregnant woman and a fetus were found in the marsh areas in the Bay Area. So, if he had been following the news, Scott would have known. And everybody kind of knew who they have been looking for. So, everybody knew that this was Lacey and Connor. They were just waiting for the confirmation. And at the time, Scott was in San Diego. And San Diego would be really close to the Mexican border. And there are accounts where Scott would have said later that he never intended to flee. Why would you have that idea? Oh, multiple reasons. But he said he never intended to flee because he actually had made a couple of trips to Mexico before, you know, before in between Lacey's disappearance and the bodies being found. Why wouldn't he have fled then? And A, yeah, that's dumb on your part, my man. B, it's a different story. Once the bodies of your family members are found and you are the prime suspect, and that, that would be the sign that the jig is up and that would be the moment for you to flee. See, when he was arrested on August the 18th, he already had a goatee going for himself. He has bleached his hair blonde, which just ain't the look, Scott. It doesn't work for you, my man. But, D, are we on that letter? That is a hole where I believe the police should have dug into more. Did he already have the plan? Because this would have, these instances would have consolidated this for the people. Like, if I was on the jury and I had the itinerary of, like, what Scott did between the disappearance and this moment in time, the moment of his arrest, and I saw the accounts that he had gone to Tijuana, to Mexico, that he made trips, possibly got a flat there, well, then... I would know what to think. And we just don't have answers to any of these questions, which would have proven premeditation or just like post-planning to some degree. 
So this is when Scott gets arrested. He, as I said, looks completely different. But uh, something that's possibly a lot more suspicious is, well, he got arrested when he parked up at the golf course. And he claimed he was to meet up his family members for a game of golf. Bear in mind, yet again, the tone deafness of it all. He knows, he doesn't know the identities of the bodies found, but common sense. Common sense, you probably know it is your wife and that son. So, what he was trying to do as he was driving to the golf course, he realized that somebody is tailing him once again. So, he kind of tries to like pull different turns, maybe park up somewhere else, think of somewhere to go so that he doesn't look bad that he is going to play golf on that day. But then eventually decides, fuck it. So he gets arrested at this golf course. And in the car, the police will find some survival gear, some camping equipment, several changes of clothes, four cell phones, two drive's licenses, 12 Viagra tablets, which is something that nobody explores and should have probably been explored more like, where is he going? Does he already have somebody else lined up? And more suspiciously, also, $15,000 in cash. The police will mostly focus on, well, the driver's licenses, why did he have his brother's driver's license, you know, of course, his family is gonna stick up for him. They're gonna say he had it because he was trying to avoid the media, he was trying to play golf, like, what, what's wrong with that? He's just trying to move on with his life, like, leave him the hell alone. So he's just been using his brother's license at this golf course. And then the point of contention would become the $15,000. As it should, because, you know, you have changed your appearance. The obvious conclusion is you are fleeing. You are about to get the fuck out of the country so that we can't prosecute you. And here is where his mom, Jackie, would come through. And she would invent, listen, I will spare your IQ dropping during this story. But the short of it is that she claim that Scott and her, because it's a love story between her and her son, right? So, they had a mutual bank account, okay? They had a mommy and son bank account, okay? Edgeen and Augusta kind of love story here, like, just go back to your mommy, Edgeen. So, they had a mutual bank account, and accidentally, on that day, Jackie took out all of this money from this mutual account, and she's like, oh my god, I noticed my mistake, I should have taken this out from my own account. So, she gave it to him in cash so that he puts it back into his account. The more realistic story for, you know, anybody with some IQ left in them is that she probably helped him out. He probably asked his mommy to take this money out so that it's taken from her account with her name on these slips so that he doesn't look suspicious. And so they can't connect that money to him once he fled the country. Once he gets arrested, he chooses this famous defense lawyer to defend him. This guy's name is Mark Garagos, and he famously represented Chris Brown, which just tells you everything. But before the trial begins in 2004, actually Lacey's parents would make sure to fight for something. And that something would be to pass the act within the White House with President George Bush signing that bill into law. And that is to ensure that Scott Peterson and anybody else who 
is suspected of killing a pregnant wife with a child that would have been viable, meaning that could have been born alive, causing death or injury to this unborn child, would be charged with two separate offenses. So, he's going to be tried for the murder of Lacey and for the murder of Connor, which is wild that this wasn't passed on as an act before this. But luckily, it was. So, we go to June 2004. This is when Scott Peterson's trial will start. And they would move from Modesto, of course, because this is, you know, where everybody would have known this story. They moved to this county called San Mateo County in California. But let's be honest, wherever this trial would have been moved, the whole world at this point knew about this case, let alone anywhere in California. And this would be the basis of the rest of Scott Peterson's life to begin with. But also something that I haven't researched or looked into until this case, and that is because I never covered a case that spoke about this, and that is that they could have chosen to sequester a jury. Now, if you have had a day of Latin, a day of Spanish in high school or somewhere, you would know that, yes, sequester is from sequestrar, meaning to kidnap. So, they could have paid the jury to stay in this private hotel to make sure that they don't have any access to the media, to the newspapers, to the internet, to any of the devices, and that they literally just go between the courtroom and this hotel. But this wasn't done. So, of course, if you hear something in court, it isn't clarified for you. I would be the first one to admit I'd go home and Google the shit out of that fact. I'd be Googling, searching, making sure that I have all of the details that maybe aren't explained in court. And that is exactly what would be happening throughout Scott's trial. The opening statements began, and the prosecutor's opening statement was kind of, like, mild. They never called him a murderer. It was just kind of like a ramble of a story that has happened, that they believe had happened on that day, giving a possible motive that he would be responsibility-free after he killed his wife and then soon-to-be son, and mentioning that he did have a mistress on the side, which would kind of add on to that motive. But then the opening statements by the defense was a lot more powerful, just because Mark Garagos was a more impressionable character. Just more dramatic, leaving more of an impression, which is what you want the opening and the closing statements to do. So, if we were to judge by the opening statements, Mark Garagos would leave more of an impression. Before we dive into the evidence, let me just get this out of the way three of the jurors will end up being replaced. The third one, like, really close towards the end. So, I just want to mention sort of, like, the reasons why. The first juror would be dismissed because he apparently started up a conversation with Lacey's brother, and you aren't supposed to talk to the family members. And this is because this juror offered to Lacey's brother to just go out of the courtroom with him, because if he was in the presence of a juror, the media wouldn't be able to publish those pictures, sort of to give just family a bit of privacy, because they were going through so much, with the media everywhere in front of the courthouse, but this has been seen, so this juror was dismissed. The second juror was dismissed because they were doing research on the side, and apparently that was found out. 
and the third was dismissed within the deliberations process, which I don't even know how the fuck that happens, but apparently this juror was one of, well, the only one, really believing that Scott might potentially be innocent, that there is evidence showing that, and he was arguing with the jurors, so they complained about him arguing with them, and then they changed that up. There's a lot of debatability here about him having a fair trial, I don't think he had the worst trial ever, mostly because he didn't have the worst representation ever. He had the pretty decent lawyers. It's just that some of this evidence will be stronger than the other. And yes, I do think that he could have had a lot better jury and just a lot more stability within the court. And that will eventually come to light during the trial and also after. So now let's speak about the evidence. In terms of actual physical evidence, there was only a single hair that was confirmed to be Lacey's, and this single strand of hair was found in Scott's boat. And it was also connected and stuck into pliers, which I can't explain and nobody really cares to. And I'm just thinking, why are the pliers in a boat? Did he transfer the pliers from the home? Why is Lacey's strand of hair anywhere near a boat? When she's scared of water, she wouldn't have seen that boat. Nobody would really be able to explain that, and of course, Scott would eventually say that, well, there were never cameras near the storage room. Lacey knew of the boat always, and she had seen that he had bought the boat. You know, the same way that we can't confirm whether or not there was a body in the boat that day, because there's no CCTV showing that, we can't confirm whether or not Lacey knew about the boat. In terms of circumstantial evidence, there was plenty. There was all of the bizarre behavior that was all on cameras and off them, the eyewitness testimonies, him lying about the affair, lying about where he was going that morning and then switching up that story, Something that I haven't mentioned, that is that during this investigation, Scott also looked into selling the car and the house. And this is before the bodies were found. So this is before he definitely knew that his wife was dead, which would be weird because if your wife was actually missing, why aren't you staying at the house where she knows where to return? Certain jewelry that Lacey would wear always upon leaving the house, still in the house, so they knew that she wouldn't have left on her own accord. And also the fact that she was found in those beige clothes, those were the clothes that she would be wearing to bed. So it made people believe, well, that she wouldn't have left the house in those clothes to walk the dog. And also that maybe she died during that evening, during the night. Most incriminatingly, probably, among the circumstantial evidence was all of the cement that was all over the trailer, and the proof that they had that he made five different anchors, and that only one of those would be found and no cement would be left. Just to make sure that this sinks in, because this is the most morbid part, by attaching the anchors to the bodies, I believe that Scott wanted, eventually in the decomposing stages, 
to speed up the decomposition and, well, the separation of the limbs, because he probably expected for all of the limbs to be detached and obviously for the police then not to be able to find her head for the dental records never to match up with Lacey and not to be able to find her actual limbs like her arms for the fingerprints to be able to connect it to her meaning no body, no crime because she would never be able to be identified which is just next level of sinister. And then, on once they actually search this whole, like, four laptops, four phones, well, Scotty Boy has conducted searches before the 24th of December for fishing reports. Such fishermen, such fishermen, why? Such basic shit. Why are you conducting fishing report searches? Weather conditions. Interesting that you conduct weather conditions, but then you know it's cold and you switch up between golfing and fishing on that day. And on these fishing reports, he would be zooming in on the right areas. And those were shown in court. And it's just so beyond, because he zooms into this one island. And where the bodies were found was literally just, like, adjacent to it. So they just swam up on the shore adjacent to it to bite him in the fucking ass. The defense, led by Mark Garagos, of course, had an upper hand up to a certain degree because they could refute all of this evidence, being like, that's circumstantial. What does that prove? It proves nothing. It's a strand of hair. Like, it just doesn't make sense. He has alibi. You know, we don't really have anything on our client. They also offered so many theories. Satanic cult, again, I will not bore you. There are probably plenty of videos out there going in depth on this. I just don't want people to feel dumbed down by this video because this is like one of the least plausible theories. But they offered up that burglary theory. Also that Lacey must have been kidnapped and then held until she gave birth. And then both of the bodies would be dumped in the bay. Which doesn't really work because the autopsy reports prove that the baby was never alive. You know, some sort of validity all the way until not even Ember, not even Ember reached the stand. But a friend from one of these conventions, his work trips, who spoke about Scott flirting with another woman. So this isn't the Ember meetup in November. No, this is another woman, another affair that Scott has had during one of his work trips. This would be followed by Lacey's mom taking the stand to testify that Scott at least had two other affairs before Ember and that Lacey probably knew about one of them. One of these affairs was actually during the college days. So as they started dating and they went to graduate, on graduation day, this woman kind of seemed to have been acting like she still might have believed that she was Scott's girlfriend. And only then realized, you know, by the way that Lacey was speaking to Scott, oh, he's actually dating somebody else. But then, on August the 10th, 2004, Amber Fry took the stand. And she told the jury all about the relationship with Scott, the lies that he had told her. And something that had the most impact 
was the prosecution team putting those pictures side by side of Amber Fry and Scott Peterson on one Christmas party and Lacey Peterson heavily pregnant on another without her husband. Following this, the jury will have to sit through 12 hours of the tapes of the phone calls between Amber and Scott. And if you think about it, this isn't something you can go home and Google whatever kind of juror you are. This is inside information, and it probably, most certainly so, made the biggest impression on all of the jurors. Then, which I honestly hope some of these jurors got therapy for, the pictures of the bodies would end up being shown. Lacey's family wasn't present. But interestingly, Scott was, and so was his family, like both Jackie and Lee, which I don't understand. I think even Scott could have chosen not to be present. But also, interestingly, he looked at the pictures of Lacey, rather Lacey's corpse, but couldn't look when pictures of Connor would show up. And I just put in the script, was he in some sort of morbid way admiring his work? Just in some sort of, like, morbid curiosity, because, of course, he wouldn't have known the extent to which these anchors would have actually worked in different stages of decomposition. I mean, unless he has done this before, which also is a really weird method to, like, figure out how to make anchors and how much cement you need for all of that. For somebody who just isn't skilled, skilled fisherman, skilled at any of this, which, again, brings me to believe that, like, his family was a lot more involved. Nobody mentions this. And I'm sorry if, like, I'm too harsh on the family, but Jackie, with taking the money out of the account, even if you never ask the question, you must believe that he's gonna try to flee, or why else are you taking the money out? And with Lee, well, how did he come up with this whole... Anchor thing. Again, whatever question Scott asked, he probably didn't come up to his dad and was like, hey, how would I go about decapitating somebody in the least obvious way? How would I go about obtaining this amount of cement? Because that's not what was found in his Google searches. And it just troubles me that I don't have the answers to these questions. So that means that probably somebody in his life had the answers of, like, how much cement to buy, how to go about creating anchors, all of that that would have worked against him in the court of law. In terms of the evidence his defense team had, Garagos would call on a medical expert who would testify that Connor actually died no earlier than December the 29th meaning that Lacey was still alive when she was reported missing. But then he would testify when cross-examined that he kind of depended on hearsay and also told the cross-examining prosecutor to cut him some slack. So that didn't really make much of an impression. Then, as for the evidence, they also showed the Martha Stewart show from that morning, because the prosecution team would say that Martha Stewart never spoke about meringue, so the defense team kind of showed it, which proved to them that Lacey would have still been alive, because why would have Scott watched 
Martha Stewart. To support that theory, they also showed the online searches and some online shopping for umbrellas, these like girly-like umbrellas apparently, and red women's scarves from that same morning. Which they're saying like, why would have Scott made these searches? Like this would have definitely been lacy. They had all of the witness testimonies, all of the timestamps confirming his alibi. But again, if you think about the direct evidence instead of circumstantial evidence, they didn't have much to show for either. So after five months and more than 180 witnesses called to the stand, the jury was left to decide upon the verdict. And during the penalty phase, because they first have to decide if he was guilty, and then whether or not they're going to decide upon the death penalty or life in prison, the family could go on the stand and leave impact statements. And something that will stick with me forever was what Lacey's mom said. She recalled a moment before Lacey's funeral where she was left alone with a casket, and she said that even though Lacey and Connor were in the same casket, Lacey couldn't hold him because she doesn't have any arms. As Lacey's mom was making this statement, Scott was just smiling, having some beds with his lawyer, Mark Garagos. And then Jackie... <laughs> and then Jackie took the stand to make the impact statement, and she begged for her son's life. And she said, if the jury condemns him to the death sentence, it would be like Lacey never existed. This doesn't make any sense. Like, is Lacey defined by Scott? I don't understand what she's trying to say. Like, just go to your mommy Augusta again. Just suck on some teeth. Clearly, she loves you like no other woman ever will be able to. Fuck me. Like, what does this even mean? I mean, it can't mean anything else than if Scott doesn't exist, then Lacey doesn't exist. Because what, she didn't exist before Scott. So, on November the 12th, 2004, despite the fact that murder weapon was never found and that there was no physical evidence tying Scott to the murders, he was found guilty of the first-degree murder for the death of Lacey and then the second-degree murder for the death of Connor. And he would get the death penalty. He would be sent to the death row. And here, the crowds cheered on the outside, and the jurors immediately went out to give some statements. And just these jurors, I don't know, it just seemed like they were too excited to, like, pass on this statement. They were, like, very much so convinced that he was guilty, but it kind of sounded like, yeah, send him to hell, to the death penalty, send him to the gallows, basically, like... More sounded like, whoa, they have achieved some lynch mobbing shit rather than actually bringing on, like, a civilized verdict. But, of course, Scott is going to start appealing straight away. Well, before that, even in 2005, the judge ruled that Scott actually isn't entitled to the life insurance policy, which is something we haven't spoken about yet and really wasn't brought up in court from what I've seen. And this life insurance policy was for a quarter of a million dollars. So, I mean, what are the chances that Scott didn't know of it and that it wasn't just like an additional motive to possibly kill Lacey? 
2006, Sharon, Lacey's mom, wrote a book, published it, and this book ended up being number one on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. The book is called For Lacey, A Mother's Story of Love, Loss, and Justice. And this is a biography and memoir about Lacey's life and death. Unfortunately, certain family members of Lacey's will just never live to see the conclusions of some of these appeals. Her stepfather, Ron, died in his sleep in 2018. He was buried next to Lacey and Connor, and her dad, Dennis, died in 2018 at the age of 72. Now, Scott had a couple of appeals, appealing his sentence and, more importantly, the death penalty. His new set of lawyers tried appealing that he couldn't have possibly been on a boat with pregnant Lacey and then also flipped the body over with all of those anchors, that the, bo that the boat couldn't have handled that, that the boat would have flipped in itself. But they conducted this experiment, but the experiment had a completely different boat and also a different sized man, so that just didn't work as the appeal. During his very last appeal, his new lawyers chose to go for the classic, the representation in the initial trial, saying that Garagos messed up because he actually never brought up the witnesses that he mentioned during the trial. The witnesses that could have confirmed where Lacey was and saw her walking, and all of the witnesses that he said he will bring up later in the trial that saw Scott in the marina on the other end of the town, by himself. And another point in that appeal was that one of the jurors... So, remember how they replaced one of them? Well, the replacement juror actually never brought up during the time of the trial that she was actually assaulted by her boyfriend. So, meaning that she was, at some point in her life, a victim of violent crime somebody who would very much want for a person that is also allegedly responsible for a violent crime against a woman to pay for it, to end up in jail. This appeal partially worked. So, on August 24, 2020, only last year, his death sentence was overturned, and that was on the basis of the jurors that were picked for the trial, the court upheld the murder convictions, so they are still intact. But then later, in 2020, they ordered for these convictions to be re-examined. As of the day that I'm recording this now, in September 2021, this is where the things stand. Some news can come up literally any day, depending on how the police is actually investigating this. And that is all on the basis of that juror that didn't disclose that information in trial. So, they are assessing whether there is enough evidence for a new trial, whether the new trial is needed. And ABC 2020 most recently made, like, a whole new series called One Last Chance, where they interviewed one of Scott's half-sisters, and she has, like, this, what she calls a war room, where she has, like, files on files, sort of going into the timeline, showing why Scott couldn't have done this, and where the police has failed, mostly about questioning all of the eyewitnesses on the day. 
So if there are any updates on this case, I'll make sure to share them with you in any of the upcoming episodes. But that is where this is right now. I personally, A, don't think that he will have another trial. I kind of hope he doesn't, to be honest. And in terms of what I personally think about his guilt, I always say on this channel and on my other YouTube channel, it's always the story that just flows better. It's the story that makes the most sense. The story where you have to stop the least amount of times to question what is happening. What is somebody saying? Like, this story just doesn't really flow. And in this case, that just isn't Scott's alibi. It just doesn't make any sense. But that there are flaws in the investigation, that they have only focused on Scott, but kind of like in the wrong ways, yes. What I would like to see is all of the searches that have happened, well, not all of them, but like between December the 9th, at least, and December the 24th. What the hell was going on during that time? Before, between the time that he got the boat, can we prove that timeline? Because if a new trial is called for, then we kind of can't just repeat the exact same things. We need something stronger. It means we need something else to actually make sure that the convictions are upheld. So as I pointed out, for me personally, there are gaps between December 9th and December the 24th, including why buy that boat, why buy that license, the whole thing about the cement and the anchors, the 23rd of December, was this something he did on the same date every month? Could he have planned for that part in this story as well? Did he plan everything on December the 24th, like watching Martha Stewart doing the online searches, or was this really done by Lacey? Why that date? That is something that troubled me and I don't have answered. Why would you do it on a Christmas Eve unless you really think that because of the holiday season, because of how that will play out in terms of like how your affair works and all of the trips that you have lined up, that you have lied about to like Paris, New York, wherever the hell he was telling Ember that he was because of, well, that haircut the night before and then the dinner on that day. In his head, he had to do it on that day to get away with it. If we are saying this is calculated, this is premeditated, this is planned, we kind of need answers to all of those questions. Like, how do they fit into that storyline? And I don't have them. I couldn't find them anywhere. Because we can't be saying at the same time that he has premeditated this, that he has rolled her body over, attached to five different anchors, which he had bought in advance, with the boat, with the rod, with the whole fishing preparation and the license, and also be saying that this is the spur of the moment thing and that he killed her on that same day. We can't be saying both things. So we believe that it's premeditated, which means we kind of need the answers as to how and why this particular day. But in terms of whys, before we have that information, if we ever will, let's discuss the potential motives. Here, every account of events identifies Scott as a narcissist, as a narcissistic killer, 
meaning he's somebody who would harm those who no longer fulfill his needs. If we look into Peterson's, the one pattern that pops up is that all three of them were spouse killers. And spouse killers differ from the usual perpetrators of, like, anonymous crimes of violence. Interestingly, they're usually older and don't have a criminal record to show for. Meaning that this comes usually as a surprise, because they have less of a criminal record than somebody who is just a compulsive killer. And usually these killers involve themselves in marriages where both parties have a fixed role, which I find interesting in this case, because it is kind of true, you know. He is a salesman, she is more of a housewife, really nurturing, wants a child, completely different traits. So in this kind of dynamic, for a while, each person follows their own fixed roles, but then when an introduction of a third person happens in this kind of relationship, that leads to the instability of balance. And yes, here, I know that this isn't like a passive tense, like, oh, the person was introduced. It's more like Scott was seeking the affairs. Speaking of the affairs, usually in the spouse-killers kind of relationships, there is some form of gain. They would have gotten something out of it. So here, yes, he could have continued having an affair or plenty others. He would have been responsibility-free without a wife and without a child. To which, yes, Lacey's mom said he could have just asked for a divorce. As simple as that. That would have been the solution. And another reason, another possible motive that came out during the appeals was the insurance policy. Not only would have he been responsibility-free, free to do anything he wanted, he would have also gained quarter of a million dollars to support his freedom. Now is the time that you let me know what you think about this story. Do you believe in his guilt? Do you believe that this was premeditated, it was calculated from his very early age and that it worked into his favor to a certain degree until it didn't any longer in this case? Or do you believe that there just wasn't enough to convict him? that he didn't have a fair trial, that he should have a fair trial, and what would you like to see answered during that one? Because if we are having a different trial, you would plausibly like to see different kind of information answered to and referred to in that one. Because you have to think that during that trial, the jurors would know this story inside and out. So there would definitely be bias. So if, again, a jury is deciding on somebody's fate, you would want a completely different trial with similar information and any new information that would qualify for a new trial. <sighs> I have said the word trial about a hundred times during this episode. So let me know your thoughts on podbam at gmail.com or by tagging at deadbampod on Twitter or Instagram. And I'm going to leave you to continue your Monday by making this world a better place, one motive at a time. And I'm leaving you with the following words. Whether Scott lives or dies, it'll never be like Lacey Peterson never existed. Lacey did not belong to Scott. She was a headstrong woman with her own pathway cut out for her by her. Unlike her killer, she nurtured everything she touched, giving it life. 
Lacey Peterson will live through all of the stories told about her, through all of the lives she has touched. If you are to keep on living in the final thought you have the moment before your death, Lacey Peterson is living in another life with her son without anyone being able to do them harm.